Hi, I'm Brian Vines, and this is 112BK. Coming up, an immigration attorney talks about birthright citizenship and Trump's October surprise. That would be his plan to do away with it. That's what's at stake with this legal battle, to ensure that we are preserving not just a constitutional principle, yeah. but we're preserving really our values as a nation of immigrants. And then it's National Adoption Awareness Month. We'll hear from an advocate about what greater awareness should look like. If you're interested in being a parent, if you have the resources, if you have the supports that enable you to welcome a child into your family, then you really should consider adoption. Globally, approximately 140 million children are orphans. We Americans adopt more children than the rest of the world combined. In fact, one out of every 25 U.S. families with children has an adopted child. Here are some other stats you might be interested in. In America, 40% of adoptions are from the foster care system, and every year, 23,000 kids age out of that system without placement into a family. The U.S. is doing a lot to find and provide homes for kids in need, but it's still not enough. To tell us about the adoption landscape, what's changed over the years, and what stereotypes persist, we're joined by Antoinette Cochram, the Executive Vice President of External Relations and Family Services for Spence Chapin Services to Families and Children a leading nonprofit that provides adoption services. It's brought you to the table today. So happy that you're joining us on 112BK. My thank you. So glad to be here. So just from the outset, my family is one of those. My grandfather was adopted into a family, gave us our family name, and I'm here because of the love and generosity that one family extended to my granddad. Oh, so, that's so wonderful. I'm happy that you're in the fight. All right. So what do we got to do to get more kids into more loving homes? Well, what, one of the things we have to do is spread the word about adoption. You know, although it's common, for example, you learned that I work in adoption and you were happy to share your personal experience. It's a very private matter. Yeah. And so people are not generally so open in sharing what is a private family matter. But we got to get the word out there that adoption works. Mm -hmm. Adoption is a legitimate, loving way to create a family. And if you're interested in being a parent, if you have the resources if you have the supports that enable you to welcome a child into your family, then you really should consider adoption. You know what? There ought to be a month to raise awareness about adoption. Interesting that you should <laughs> say that. <laughs> November is that very month. Yeah. And at Spence Chape and, and I'm sure at many places who work in behalf of children, Adoption is celebrated this month. We're doing lots of activities to bring adoption into the forefront and to dispel some of the myths that you alluded to in your introduction. So we're sitting here in National Adoption Month. We're very happy for the awareness. So what would you want people to know right off the bat to get centered in this conversation that we're having about adoption? I want people to know that adoption is not difficult that adoption is very doable, mm -hmm. that adoption is really constructed to meet the needs of children. Huh. And so, 
you know, if you want to be a parent, everybody's entitled to be a parent in the way that they wish. But formal adoption is constructed to help children in need find permanent loving families. Right now, mm -hmm. those children are predominantly um, slightly older children yeah. and children who have special needs. So there is this idea that, number one, it's difficult and it takes a whole bunch of stuff and you have to open up your entire life. So to be sure, there are some controls. We want people who are qualified to be taking care of raising children, but there's also this perception too that everybody wants a baby. Some people want babies. Yeah. You know, and those people are entitled to be parents of infants. But many people just want to be parents. Yeah. And they want to establish loving bonds with a child whom they can raise. What do you think is the biggest bar keeping people from making that step from going into, I'd be open to adoption, to actually making a step in the direction of bringing a child into their family? I think it's the fear and ignorance that we started talking about a moment ago of mm -hmm. the process of adoption. Of course, it's regulated as well it should be. Right. I mean, it's about safeguarding children. And so there's lots of legislation. The legislation governing domestic adoption is determined on a state-by-state -state basis. The legislation governing international adoption is determined federally. There are lots of laws. Yeah. And again, there should be. But it's not impenetrable. It's not not doable. I suggest to people mm -hmm. that if they're interested in adopting, that they work with an agency of professionals like the professionals at a Spence Chapin who can guide you through the process and who can demystify some of the things that may be confusing and who have worked very hard to expedite the process. There's what about, a lot of paperwork. Well, paperwork. What about international adoptions versus adoptions with an agency like yours mm -hmm. where people are here and they're of the community besides getting a plane ticket and going somewhere where there is need, but there's also need here. Okay. You know, I when people ask me about domestic versus international, I like to say it's the difference between what your preference may be in terms mm -hmm. of building a family and what your drive is. If you are a person who's internationally oriented, who has relatives who may be from other places, gotcha. and who's always been politically motivated or socially motivated uh, with an international embrace, Spence Chapin uh, facilitates both domestic and international adoptions. Oh, very cool. And so there are groups of people who want to stay home and want to adopt children here. Yeah. If you adopt through our agency domestically, uh, we do have a program where we place infants. Mm. The international adoption program, however, not only for Spence Chapin, but, but generally, yeah. is looking for homes for slightly older children, for sibling groups, and for children with special needs. Looking at this adoption landscape, whether it's foreign or domestic, <laughs> a lot of those do happen to be transracial. And, you know, walking around in Fort Greene or these other stroller derby, you see a lot of families that are modern families yeah. who have that mix. What kind of sensitivity is paid to those and making sure that parents are equipped as well to rear a child who may be a little different than they are. Yeah, that's very, very, very important. And it's a responsibility that we take seriously at Spence Chapin. If you approach an agency like ours and talk about, I could embrace a child of any race, then we're going to engage you in a conversation about what that actually means to you and how much you what know. What does that go like? Like, you know how to comb hair? 
You exactly. make cornbread. Oh, hair is hair is big. <laughs> hair, how to take care of skin color. Right. What happens when your child bypasses that cute little baby stage? Everybody can love a baby, right. but when you your child becomes person. to starts to look like a young adult, yeah, and wants to date. Mm. Where do you live? Do you live in a diverse community? Will your child have role models? What do you know about racism? Right. You know. I have to know about racism, mm -hmm. you know. So do you as a black man. I do. But lots of people have not been acclimated not only to the experiences of people of color, mm -hmm. but they're not familiar with their own ethnicities. So, you know, we like to say that children who come into a family bring into that family their own backgrounds, their own ethnicities, but they also embrace the ethnicities and culture of their family. So you gotta know your own culture and you mm -hmm. gotta be able to combine that into a family that looks a little different. So a transracial family means transcultural. Right. So there's a lot of education that goes on and there's a lot of, people are sometimes surprised to learn that what their heart wants, mm -hmm. they are not mm. able Gotcha. to handle. Right. And so we say no to some people. So can we go for like the trifecta then? There's okay. Cam and Mitchell on uh, Modern Family. They have a young daughter who's an Asian American woman. So a gay couple with an Asian daughter and it's on TV, but it's real life for some people. How are gay couples brought into this world in adopting? That's old news. Okay. Happy to <laughs> I'm happy it. to say. Yeah. Um, especially domestically. Okay. Gay couples predominate in the world of adoption uh, domestically. Unfortunately, there are many countries mm -hmm. who do not accept same-sex relationships, families, right. and prohibit them. And so those are countries that we at Spence Chapin don't work don't work with. Well, it's election day. Is there a patchwork of states that have the same sort of restrictions? In New York, we might be fortunate where there are people who are as evolved as Spence Chapin, but in other states, are gay couples welcome to adopt children? You know, now now we're going into territory that I'm not as familiar okay. with. I know that Florida is a place that's a much more prohibitive in terms of gay families. Also, yeah. I like to make a distinction between private adoption gotcha. and Straight adoption and foster care. What are the two? Okay. Private adoption, which Spence Chapin is a not-for-profit private agency mm -hmm. with no affiliation to government funding, determines its process in accordance with New York and New Jersey laws and regulations. Gotcha. Um, and we work with women who voluntarily surrender their babies. So we have one set of clients who want to adopt, another set of clients who are pregnant and trying to make a long-term plan for their babies. Right. And they steer the ship. They call the shots. These women, sometimes couples, but most often single women yeah. who are pregnant and saying, I can't parent my child, can mm -hmm. you help me? On the other hand, in foster care, that system is designed to support people who are facing problems right. but want to keep their children in their homes. Right. So when With you the see the goal of reuniting a family yes, eventually. Yes. So it's very, very different. Okay. Well, this has been so informative. I hope we've cracked the door for someone and that they get in touch with you at Spence Chapin or just explore their options. Yes, I think that's the thing to do. And if they want to know more, Spence Chapin can be reached through our website, scnyc.org, or we love to talk in person to people, and we're having an event next Thursday yeah. 
called Cocktails and Conversations, oh. where you'll see oh, some people. <laughs> you'll see some people who've already adopted, some yeah. who are interested in it, adopting, and many staff who can help you to understand more about adoption. That's phenomenal. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Long before Donald Trump was a glimmer in his eyes, Lindsey Graham was angling to get rid of birthright citizenship via a proposed amendment to the Constitution. Eight years later, birthright citizenship has been thrust back into the news after an HBO Axios interview in which Trump was asked if he had a plan to change citizenship laws enshrined in the Constitution. And by golly, he did. This time by executive order. Predictably, that plan was panned and called out for the racism at its root. The 14th Amendment, framed in 1866, said, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. That's the Constitution. This is only a problem when America's conservatives fret that too many non-whites are becoming citizens, like right now. So they want to change that by parsing and misrepresenting the law. According to a constitutional law professor in Baltimore, if Trump is successful, the trapdoor to dictatorship will have fallen open, unquote. To talk about whether or not we're about to fall through that trapdoor, we're joined by immigration attorney and frequent 112BK guest Cesar Vargas. Welcome back to the table, sir. Thank you so much for having me again. So before you arrived today on Election Day, you were at an event with another friend of the show, Councilmember Carlos Menchaca. What were you doing this morning? Well, this morning um, I was working with a Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and NALEO, the National Latino Association of Elected Officials, to really respond to questions from voters from across the country on their rights and just answer basic questions like, where is the polling site? Am I registered? And some more uh, deep questions that people need to help, including someone's asking me for my identification. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's someone's challenging my voting, my voting history. So, you know, it's one of those questions for us that this election is very important for us to get the community out there to support because we know that there's a climate of fear that this administration has created and a climate of hopelessness for many people to disregard their rights because they feel that their rights are not being protected. And today is one of those days that on Election Day, uh, we want to make sure. And the councilman has been working tirelessly to respond and inform the immigrant community on the latest developments on immigration, especially in this administration that tries to take away rights from immigrants left and right. So just one more question about that before we get into this birthright citizenship. Looking at the forum today and hearing the questions, how are you feeling about the climate after hearing the voices of real people really standing up and saying, hey, I have a question? Well, it's definitely exciting, especially Spanish speakers who are U.S. citizens long term, and they feel that because they don't speak English or their English is very limited that they are going to be confronted with roadblocks and not be able to vote. So our job is to make sure that we are out there and making people feel that they are that they have the right and that they have the power to vote. And people are really excited despite the rain. People are mm-hmm. going out there in the morning. People are going there in the afternoon. And hopefully we can continue this momentum going on to the end of the night until the polls close at 9 p.m. So I'm going to ask you, counselor, 
what is your working definition for all of us non-constitutional scholar types of birthright citizenship as it is defined in the U.S. Constitution? Well, it's a principle that other 33 countries around the world have, which is simply if you are— Oh, wait. I saw Donald Trump say, we're the only ones where that happens. Is that actually not true? Well, <laughs> America's not the only place where you become a citizen by being born here? Well, we all know, obviously, that there's alternative facts under this administration. Mm. And we have a very basic and logical principle that if you're born here in the country, whether it's here in Canada or in Mexico, you're a U.S. citizen or a Mexican citizen or Canadian citizen of those countries. Very simple constitutional fact and constitutional legal principle that we have abided for a long, long time, especially during the 14th Amendment, as you referred before. And it's just simply that. And nothing more. And what this administration is trying to do is, one, it's a political stunt. But it is alarming at the same time because even though the, the Trump administration know very well that it is unconstitutional and if not has to go through the whole constitutional process, including getting two-thirds of the both Senate and right. U.S. House representatives and the states, he can still do it. Uh, he can still take action and he can still try to make policies that are going to make it as much difficult as possible for people to obtain their green cards, mm -hmm. obtain, come here, including the naturalized people who are already citizens, and ultimately make it very difficult for people to just aspire to citizenship and the American dream. So I was listening to Ann Coulter talk about this subject on some conservative dial, and she said, this guy is making it all up because if it's an executive order, I could have written it in 10 minutes and made it the law of the land now. Is she right? Is it that simple as him just with the swipe of a pen saying, hey, it's my executive order. Now the 14th Amendment is trash. Well, he can definitely do a lot of things with the with the power of the executive uh, under his belt. Uh, he can he has done it, uh, whether it's on the Muslim ban, mm -hmm. uh, where he whether it's, it's just just eliminating DACA. We know very well that he can do it. Now, the other question is whether he can constitutionally do it. So, you know, obviously the process of, of going through the courts and debating with the lawyers, that's a that's a conversation that, you know, could take years, if not months for mm -hmm. us to decide legally. But the most alarming part of all that is the de facto consequences of all that. You know, we have states now like Texas who are denying birth certificates to U.S. citizens uh, simply because they feel that if you're born to undocumented parents, you need to show this proof. You need to show that identification. So the consequences of people, their rights being taken away, their citizenship being denied, it's happening now. And this president is uh, exacerbating that crisis where people, whether they're citizens or not, are going to see their rights being eliminated, terminated. And ultimately, we're going to see a country where uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a U.S. citizen or a non-citizen, you can be targeted by this administration. And as the constitutional profession said, absolutely, when a president or whether an elected official uh, thinks that they have all this power, that's alarming for every single person, not just those who are here undocumented or as children of skipping violence, but everyone has a real, real, real chance of being targeted. There have been a lot of criticisms as well of the way that the media has been covering this, saying, you know, this is Trump giving red meat to his base. He knows that he's not going to do this, and he just wants to get people riled up and get their hate on before going to the polls to really turn out. How much credence do you give to that argument? Oh, there's definitely, you know, it's a dog whistle for, for Donald Trump and his base to be riled up. No question about that. But the real, the real consequences is how other states, other cities 
are going to run are, are run with this. Yeah. And you know, we have in Louisiana where where the state is denying marriage licenses to those who don't have a valid visa stamp on their passport. So if you're undocumented or even if you're if you're if you're documented and you apply for asylum or, or any type of protection, legal protection, mm-hmm. they may be denying not just birth certificates, but marriage licenses, yeah. uh, driver's licenses and voting rights. So, you know, it's it that's the alarming part that we know very well this administration is just plain theatrics when it yeah. comes to throwing red meat to his base. But at the same time is what the other cities and states are following that doesn't get that coverage that is equally detrimental to people's rights. Let's pull on that thread a little bit more because we saw all of the sound and fury surrounding the Muslim ban, the slap back, and then the return of really trying to jam something through. So are we in real danger of this coming back in some form? And what does the resistance look like? Well, there's no question about it. We're going to have, we're going to fight this in the courts. We're going to take this to the federal court. We're going to take this ultimately to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And as we know very well, we have a conservative majority now with Justice Brad Kavanaugh on on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not going to look very friendly. So I think that isn't a a questionable component of whether or not we're going to succeed. But ultimately, we have a constitutional process. And the resistance means that we're going to fight this in the courts, we're going to fight this in the legislature, and we're going to fight this in the streets to ensure that people's rights are protected and that we keep our country and our nation as Mm -hmm. a nation of immigrants, but most important, a nation where citizenship means equal protection under the law for everyone, regardless of your citizenship status. I wonder if you have any idea of what the landscape would be if there was any level of success with this and all of a sudden something that we thought was bedrock. Hey, I was born here and now I'm a citizen no matter what. What are the alternatives? What would one have to do to prove their Americanhood if not being born here like we've been since 14? Yeah, and, and you know that is the part, and we don't know how this executive order or this effort to pretty much take away citizenship will look like. People may say that, hey, I'm protected, but it could be retroactive, meaning that if your parents are undocumented or one of them is undocumented or a non-citizen, yeah. your citizenship could be taken away for it. And this could affect thousands and thousands of people. This administration is creating a task force to investigate into those who are already citizens, if they made a mistake, perhaps misspelled their names or used another name. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously we have cases of obviously fraud, but most cases are either, you know, so minimal that you could see yourself receiving a letter and saying your citizenship is being revoked and you need to convince the federal government otherwise. And, you know, so that's the part that we, we're seeing this administration targeting at every level of uh, people, their rights being targeted, and we know very well that despite the political dog whistle, uh, yeah. it has real consequences on people's rights. So I recently read an opinion piece by you in The Hill where you said birthright citizenship bolsters American democracy. Tell us about that. That is exactly what this birthright citizenship is. It's what makes America great. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's family is the product of that. His grandfather was an immigrant. His mother was an immigrant. Many of his supporters are are children of immigrants. And they're yelling at you right now. They did it the right way. (laughs) They came through Ellis Island. They came from Staten Island. Wherever (laughs) island they came from, they got in line and they did it the right way. I saw Mike Pence say it the other day. And ultimately, you know, when, when we're talking about birthright citizenship, we're really talking about the basic principle of what this nation is about, that you can come from any part of the world mm-hmm. and settle here, 
have children, have a family, and still call yourself American. Yeah. Proudly say that you're Mexican, Greek, Italian, Irish, Liberian, Jamaican, you name it, and still be deemed an American. And I think that's what's at stake with this controversy. That's what's at stake with mm-hmm. this legal battle, to ensure that we are preserving not just a constitutional principle, yeah. but we're preserving really our values as a nation of immigrants. So if we get into the Wayback Machine, 14, 15, 16, those are essentially the Black Amendments. This is all the post-Civil uh, War stuff to incorporate Black people into America. And a lot of folks on one side of this argument are using that historical fact as a basis for saying, oh, it looks like this. But it's really not that. It was about them then, so it's not really applicable now. So that's drawing a whole bunch of people in confusion yeah. and dog whistling again. Well, let's talk about real, the real history of the 14th, 15th, and 16th Amendment and the real history of immigration laws, which is they were inherently created to address racist principles, right. racist governments, racist state, uh, why we fought the Civil War, and also our immigration system has been inherently racist. You know, it doesn't matter whether you were in 1790 where only white U.S. heterosexual Protestants could be uh, could have be citizens yeah. have power to vote. Uh, but we know in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act, if you were Asian, you would be banned from this country. In 1950, Operation Wetback, the U.S. deported more than 2 million Mexicans and Mexican-American U.S. citizens yeah. because they they saw what? We don't want brown people. We don't want black people. We just want Obama. Exactly. You know, we just <laughs> want people from Sweden, as this administration has said, right? Yeah. So absolutely, this is nothing more than another racist attack by this administration using inherently racist immigration system to target people of color. Can we, just before we get out of here, talk about one more thing that's been bedrock since the Holocaust, welcoming people who are seeking refuge from persecution. There's a caravan coming, or there's a scaravan coming, depending if you listen to (laughs) AM or FM radio. What of that should we be watching out for when we're getting all of this messaging? Well, simply, one, many of these people coming here who are seeking asylum under U.S. and international law, they are going through a legal channel to petition the government for protection from violence or whatever they're escaping from. That's basic principle, legal and overall policy-wise. And ultimately, you know, these are individuals who are escaping violence. And the U.S. has had a major impact in many of these countries' foreign policies. You know, our foreign policies have created those conditions in which people are being pushed away. So, one, we need to be better neighbors. The United States needs to be a better neighbor to the world and take responsibility and offer our humanitarian aid to people that have been displaced by foreign policy. So let's be better neighbors, let's take responsibility, and let's work together with the whole world to address crises of people being displaced, people being attacked by their own governments, and making sure that every people don't have to risk their life just to seek a better opportunity or even just eat. Cesar Vargas, attorney at law. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me again. again. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Jarrett Murphy of City Limits and two political reporters will break down the results of Tuesday's elections. And we hope not just plain break down. We'll see you then. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, but hosted by me, Brian Lyons, today. It's written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, 
and Emily Bogosian. It's recorded by Eric Hagasag, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. And it's edited by Mira Al-Rahim. It's executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Aziz Aisham, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>